Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Here is my favorite quote that I read this week. It comes from Phyllis Rose in her book, Parallel Lives. She's talking about gossip, and she says, Gossip may be the beginning of moral inquiry. We're so desperate for information about how other people live their lives because we want to know how we should be living our lives. And yet we're taught to see this desire as an illegitimate form of prying. But the cultural pressures against gossip ought to be resisted, and they ought to be resisted in the spirit of good citizenship. I always feel distinguished when I'm reading a six or seven hundred page biography of an author, but the truth is that it's not a particularly intellectual exercise. I'm looking at their process. I'm trying to be a fly on the wall in their private creative moments. I always slow down when I get to a passage about m how much money they made or sex they have or rivalries, indiscretions, benders. John Updike used to refer to literary criticism as higher gossip, and it, maybe it is exactly that, but I much prefer the lower kind of gossip. There are some authors who fascinate me because they led a particularly secretive or juicy life. Authors like Norman Mailer, Susan Sontag, Joan Didion, people who were writers and in some cases prolific writers, but where at this point in my life, after knowing of their work for 15 years or so, I can confidently say I've probably read more pages about them than by them. William T. Volman is one of the most readable writers out there, and he's one of my favorites, and he has led a perfectly salacious, adventurous life, and he discusses it at great enough length, at naked enough length in his own work that you don't really need any kind of gossip rag. But over the past few years, I've become mindful of the extent to which my interest in William T. Volman as a writer sometimes eclipses my interest in the subject matter that he's chosen to pursue. And that subject matter goes far and wide. I don't think he has any readers who are gonna say that they were always interested in everything that he's written about. He wrote a book about train hopping, a book about Japanese no theater. He wrote two volumes about climate change. He wrote a book of ghost stories. He wrote books about his firsthand experiences of war in, in Afghanistan as well as Somalia. He wrote a book about his adventures in cross-dressing as part of an ongoing trilogy about gender. For his climate change book, Carbon Ideologies, he went and he did on-the-ground reporting at the irradiated Fukushima nuclear plant. Since roughly 2007, when I discovered his work, Volman has released about 15 books, which means that whenever he's crossed my mind and I casually Google him, every six months or so, there's usually something new. A profile in a magazine, a book of essays or stories, a novel, a reprint. There's always something. But in 2021, whenever I would Google his name, nothing came up. Nor was there anything in 2022 or 2023, or at least not until the end of the year. At one point a few weeks ago, during the holidays, I went to a bar and I looked him up on my phone and I saw that back in November, Volman had published an essay in Harper's Magazine called Four Men. I'm gonna post a link to it in the description. So I clicked through and I, I went to read it and it starts out like any of the many, many pieces Volman has written about homelessness, but it's not more than a few paragraphs into the piece that it suddenly shifts focus. He writes about the death of his only child, Lisa, in 2022. He writes about the cancer he was being treated for just before she died. Volman recently finished writing a novel about the CIA called A Table for Fortune. I'd seen remarks about it for years. I knew that it was one of the many books that he was working on at a given moment. And as soon as I heard that it was finished, I heard that it was canceled. He's written with such consistency and effusion and erudition over the past few years that the prospect of reaching out and trying to have a conversation was a little intimidating. What I discovered and what I should have given him more credit for once we got on the phone is that if you find yourself in the company of someone who is friendly, 
who's interesting. It kind of doesn't take much effort to keep things rolling. So that's what happened, and that's what you're about to hear, is my edited, cleaned-up version of a phone call with William T. Volman. Before we get to it, I wanted to say thanks to everyone on Reddit who submitted a question that they wanted me to ask. We got caught up in topics, and we only had 10 minutes left when I got to those questions. Volman's answers are pretty comprehensive, so we weren't able to cover more than a few. But if you're only coming to this podcast because you, like me, Google his name and look for the most recent interview, just reach out to me via Instagram or email. My contact information will be down below in the show notes, and I'll be happy to send you a link to the unedited version. Now I'm going to get into some questions I had about the situation we are having with Table of Fortune. Excuse me, Table for Fortune. Uh, I found a few different sources where the the article in the middle is is different, but on the site where I read an actual excerpt, it's Table Tables for Fortune, right? Oh yeah. Oh, is there an excerpt from Table for Fortune out there? Yeah, it's. Um, the, I think the editor of this online magazine met you on a bus. It's a scene in which Matthew is. Um, th- there's a rhythm of sort of starry-eyed naivete popping in at bars oh, and diners. Okay, yeah, when, when he goes to Reading, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That was the Bohemian. That was, I think, 2016. So, I. How long have you been at, at work on this? I don't know. Something like. Uh, like 12 or 15 years. For a while, I wasn't really sure what kind of character Matthew would have and what his father would actually do for the CIA. And then uh, being able to interview a couple of people who were in the CIA or connected to it and beginning to realize, okay, the father needs to be an analyst. He's home and then... uh, he can be talking to Matthew, and um, and then it's it started to to make more sense. When I went up to Reading, I was still trying to work out how Matthew would you know would have a a big conflict with his father over Abu Ghraib and extraordinary rendition, and uh, and in Reading, I realized that by most standards, Matthew is not very smart. Um, but um, he's got a really, really good heart and uh, a very uh, moral sensibility and by all uh, outward indications, he's going from bad to worse all of his life. But, you know, one of his uh, girlfriends um, has uh, given him a copy of the Confucian Analects, and he reads very widely. He doesn't remember a lot of what he reads, but, um, you know, there are some things in there that really, really resonate with him. At one point, there's some uh, judge who's just gotten fired three times. And so he's asked, well, you know, you've been fired three times. Why don't you quit? And the judge says, well, um, you know, going straight, you know, and doing the right thing. How could I not be fired three times? And Matthew just loves that. And then um, Confucius is talking about um, a guy named Hui. He says, well, this guy lived in a a really, really nasty lane, was always cold, lived on crummy food. Most people uh, couldn't have stood it, you know? but it's praise. And uh, so Matthew ends up um, rejecting his family 
and being homeless and bumming around the country uh, gave me an excuse to um, to sleep in a bunch of homeless camps and spend some time on islands in the San Joaquin Delta um, trying to figure out how he and his girlfriend would make a Thule house to live in, all that kind of stuff. While the, um, the father, um, you know, was a very, very uh, brave uh, Air Force pilot in Vietnam who was recruited to the CIA in 1968. And so um, it follows his rather improbably long career from 1968 until he retires in 2019. But I figure, you know, the CIA can, uh, can engage in disinformation, so I can give somebody you know, a slightly preposterous career. Um, and, um, you know, it's, um, it's very, very hard to, um, to be nuanced about stuff like torture. That's always been one of the things that has infuriated me the most. But I understand, too, one of these, uh, the, the CIA guys said, you know, look, Bill, these people felt when September 11th happened that they had they had let America down and they didn't know when they were going to strike again. There was anthrax, you know, this potential attack in L.A., all this stuff. And um, they couldn't figure it out. They were doing what they thought they had to do. And um, and then, of course, you know, um, when you start reading about the stuff that Al Qaeda has done, and then their their affiliates such as ISIS, these horrible, horrible things, it kind of um, puts in the shade much of what the CIA has done. And I'm actually I'm not against the CIA as such. I'm not against any intelligence agency as such. I know those people are needed for the, the torture, for Iraq, and so forth, you have to blame uh, Bush and Cheney, ultimately. The CIA was saying, well, we don't know that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. Well, you know, tweak it until you can say that he does. It's the same kind of thing that uh, the government was doing in Vietnam. Oh, you know, this CIA estimate is too gloomy. So, you know, so... Ignore their conclusions, Mr. President. Or the CIA did not want to go into Angola, but um, Kissinger and Ford wanted it to happen, so they did, and uh, just to, to bloody the Soviets. You see all this stuff, you start to learn it, and you think it's far more complicated, you know, than, than I ever could have imagined. It's not right to say the CIA is a villain, it's not right to say that, um, I don't know, do people get the government that they deserve? Uh, do people get the president that they deserve? Does the CIA get the president it deserves? Um, so um, I really wanted to think about that and personalize it through this one family in McLean, Virginia, the CIA suburb. And I originally didn't think the book would need to be so long, I thought, well, yeah, we got to start it in 68, and let's say each year 
we'll allow, you know, five or ten pages to, to keep it brisk. Pretty soon, you know, the average year was 50 pages, sometimes 100 pages. And I'm thinking, you know, Bill, this is going to take a while, you know, before you get to, uh, to 2019. The book got longer and longer. And I had originally had a, uh, a three-book deal with Viking. And so um, I forget how long ago it was that, that I signed it, but, you know, it was, um, let's see, um, Carbon Ideologies, The Lesbian, and Table for Fortune. And uh, so uh, my editor, Paul Slovak, was able to get me this immense word count. You know, they didn't care quite as much back then. Um, but then... Um, when the book um, was ready to submit, um, it was it was way too long for Viking, and uh, and the other factor was that for many years I was lucky enough <clears throat> to have um, um, a wonderful devoted uh, designer, uh, Carla Balti, who has since died, and. Uh, when we were working on Europe Central, for instance, I remember going to a flea market in Berlin and getting uh, some old newspapers from World War One. Oh yeah, and here's something, you know, from the Kaiser. Ihr Sohn ist gefallen. Your son has fallen in battle, and it was written in the old fracteur type, you know, the Gothic kind of stuff. She made a font out of that and dropped it in, you know, and then we decided, yeah. You know, there, there used to be Ziegrunen, these lightning bolts on typewriters for typing SS. The SS would be lightning bolt, lightning bolt. We put that in, did all that stuff. And, uh, and I've learned over the years um, to really, really push things typographically. The visual element uh, in type is really important. So for Table for Fortune, I worked out over a period of years a whole bunch of different fonts to represent different things. So if in the course of a long paragraph, you suddenly see a typewriter font, you know that that's a CIA or Stasi, East German police report, um, or it might be a diplomatic cable. Slogans are in a certain kind of bold face. And Vikings said they didn't want to do that because they don't own their fonts anymore. They only uh, rent them. So it was going to cost them more to do this. And they wanted me to take the fonts out and they wanted me to cut it. I knew that uh, that if I stuck to my guns, um, Viking was going to fire me. And it was kind of sad. But at the same time, um, you know, nobody owes me a living. And... Uh, I can't tell somebody else, well, you have to do it my way, no matter how much it costs you, and um, my books don't make much money. So in a way, um, it's been a relief, and I've puttered away a little bit more on Table for Fortune since then, and um, um, it's looking as if it's going to come out in Germany starting in 2025, my Italian publisher is interested if I can get uh, another European publisher involved. They might be able to get 
um, European Union funding, you know, to uh, to translate it. They need something like a million euros is what they, they calculate. And um, my agent, um, you know, sent it around a few publishers and no one wanted it. And that's okay. Um, you know, I would, I would rather, uh, rather write for the desk drawer or, or retire or whatever, um, than, uh, than compromise. And so I'll go on doing my best and hoping for the best. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that it didn't work out with Viking. It's too bad that our relationship is over, but I can see their side of it. I think it's interesting what you allude to from the story of, of the judge who is, you know, basically penalized and loses his job for doing the right thing consecutive, three consecutive times. It seems that a recurring thing from what I've followed of your career is uh, the price of integrity. And that if you're going to be, if you're going to, as you say, stick to your guns, um, it means usually one compromises their integrity when it comes to opportunities to make money. And moments when you cling to your integrity are moments when you're usually having to turn down money. That's one of the easier ones. And sometimes uh, sometimes it's a question of facing intimidation or worse. Money is not the worst of it, for sure. Right. And if, maybe I'm mistaken here, but I latched on to your saying that you, you part of what compelled you to write this was your anger at torture, that it's just it's one of the things that has bothered you most uh, in your career and that makes it sound like this would be one of the few books that you've written where the seed of it like the creative seed or the emotional seed was anger is that the case i still feel anger um about the waterboarding and all that hateful stuff and um i was so disgusted uh at obama for not prosecuting any of those people um you know uh the whole thing made me sick. And then after a while I realized, well, um, that's just how it goes. And I'm not going to say that's how it goes in the USA. Uh, I'm sure it goes that way in every country, you know, um, something's done. That's really evil. People fuss about it. And, um, and then, you know, they move on to the next scandal. So, um, um, you know, at this point, it's not looking promising for prosecutions for Abu Ghraib. And so then, you know, what do I do? All right. Yeah. Um, you know, sure. I'm still angry about it. But after after a while, uh, you might as well take the long view, like Tacitus or Thucydides or, you know, both people that, that Eliot likes to read. Um, you're looking back on the start of some national catastrophe or decline. You're trying to understand how it happened, where was the road not taken, what was the big mistake, and then it becomes rather interesting. You know, that's the, the tack that I took uh, when I wrote Carbon Ideologies. We should certainly try, and uh, maybe, maybe some people are gonna make it someday, I don't know. But in the meantime, of course, it's just absurd. Uh, everything gets worse and worse. If Trump gets back in, it'll be even worse for us. 
nobody is really, really standing up. Talk about integrity and money there. When I was writing Table for Fortune, I had a lot of intellectual curiosity. Like, well, how did we get to September 11th? For me, um, I realized one of the big years was 1979. Um, that's when um, the Shah fell. Uh, that's when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. Um, so poor old Carter, um, you know, um, who thought that he could trust them and negotiate like gentlemen and so forth. He had egg on his face. Um, and um, that was when um, it seems that the, the CIA was starting to work with the Saudis to radicalize Mujahideen figured that would be a great way, you know, to stir up trouble against the Soviets. And in the meantime, we decided to uh, to make an alliance with Saddam Hussein. Um, but we continually cheated that guy and stabbed him in the back over and over and over, you know, with Iran-Contra, with Gulf War One, with Gulf War Two. And no wonder he became our enemy. We treated him as an enemy. And so um, it's quite interesting to think, well, what if we'd done that differently? Um, or uh, what if, suppose we'd had a better president than Bush too? Um, and um, like, who knows if Gore would have been any better. But what if after September 11th, we said, listen, we want to call a meeting of all the nations. Let's work together on this, figure out who did it, how to stop them. Let's talk to the Talibs uh, instead of just saying, hand him over. They had offered to, uh, um, to put Osama on trial, uh, you know, a trial by Islamic scholars and so on and so forth. Well, it might have been bullshit. I don't know. But the fact is that we didn't want anybody to tell us what to do. We were going to go and bomb Afghanistan and then, oh, actually, no, who cares about that? We can't find Osama. Let's bomb Iraq. Oh, wait, now, now Afghanistan is getting problematic. We better bomb them some more. It's just a dreary series of, um, of short-sighted bad judgments. The way you're describing it is reminding me of this this binge I went on. Um, it's only been a couple years that I, I have felt like that, the confidence to pick up uh, presidential biographies, and I, I've been binging them in that time. And even, I, I know there's always the, the risk of succumbing to the cult of personality, but because they occupy such an altitude of government, everything that they do prompts an immediate awareness the, the ramifications of every choice prompts the reader to appreciate how interconnected all these industries are with the environment, with the economy, with uh, foreign affairs. And that's very much the vibe I get, first of all, talking to you now and obviously seeing the evidence of your research for, for this particular novel. But when I read any one of your books, there is a sense of like walking away from it, feeling as though you've just looked at a topic from a greater altitude. And you mentioned going into this one with, you know, some some angry feelings, some feelings of we messed this up, this was unjust, etc. I imagine you had some of those 
moral attitudes going into your research on the Nez Perce, probably with Rising Up and Rising Down, probably every project on which you've done a deep dive. And I'm wonder, what I'm wondering is, you mentioned that the deeper you got into research here about the CIA, the more you realized it was more complicated than you had thought. But as you accumulate those facts, and as the storylines and the cause and effects become clearer to you, and, and do you find that your moral, the dial on your moral compass pretty much ends up back where it started? That the facts, did they do, they might fog and complicate the image, but do they tend to change the verdict? Well, um, if, you know, since you mentioned the dying grass, um, you know, um, I approached the story at the very beginning, believing um, that the Nez Perce War was an unjust war. And the more I found out about it, the more I realized that it was like the Iraq War, an unjust and needless war. Um, they had to get the Nez Perce out of the valley so that we could have a democracy of small American farms there and so forth. Now when you go there, um, you know, it's mostly these big um, agribusinesses and, you know, there are some towns and so forth. But, I mean, honestly, um, there was no reason to kick them out. And um, because the person in charge of, of the American side of the war um, was General O.O. O. Howard, um, um, I, uh, I started the research um, with a, a feeling of dislike and contempt for the guy. And... Uh, I ended up really liking a lot about him. He was incredibly brave. Uh, you know, he had two horses shot off him at the Battle of, of Chancellorsville, had his arm cut off without an anesthetic, never complained. And um, in a very, very racist America, he stood up uh, for the black freed slaves uh, he headed the Freedmen's Bureau and um, uh, had a, a special bank, you know, and he signed some testimony to how safe it was. And then um, President Johnson, you know, who was a real racist, um, undermined him, got rid of him. All the uh, deposits were lost. And, uh, you know, suddenly there's poor old Howard going into Congress over and over on trial for peculation and being called a nigger lover and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, he had to pay his own legal expenses. Um, he was eventually acquitted, you know, but, uh, you know, at a huge cost in humiliation and so on and so forth. So then they sent him out West, you know, and he thought, okay, now I can redeem myself, you know, and, uh, do something with Indian removal and then people will respect me. Um, and, uh, that's, you know, where, where I still, um, you know, disagree with Howard that, uh, and he also thought that the U S government had the absolute right to take Indians and put them on reservations. And then, um, when people would starve on the reservations or, you know, all this awful stuff happened, 
he tried to put his head in the sand. He didn't deal with it. So he was, uh, he was like many of us. Uh, he was a good man who'd done some good things, which came to nothing. And then um, he was complicit in evil, you know? So um, it's, a, uh, it's too easy to just say he was a villain. And, um, um, and then if we talk about the conduct of the war, uh, you know, both sides committed atrocities. The Nez Perce, uh, raped and murdered, um, you know, the cavalry did worse. It makes things, you know, what was it that Clifford Geertz talked about? Thick description. So you put in a lot of thick description at the end, I still have to say, um, the Nez Perce was an unjust war. They should have been left alone, um, you know, and uh, General Howard uh, did wrong. And when it comes to the atrocities uh, for which the CIA might be held partially culpable, whatever your attitudes were about Vietnam or Angola, did you find on the other side of your research that your preliminary moral assertions were they pretty much the same at the end? Well, um, you know, I'd never really looked into the Pentagon Papers before. That was kind of shocking to me to see that one president after another believed that we could not win the Vietnam War, and yet for the sake of re-election or to look strong or something, still um, had to go out there and say, okay, more troops, yeah, the tide is turning. That helps explain Iraq a little bit better. Bush probably didn't know what the hell to do about September 11th, but he had to do something or he'd look weak and then, oh, um, well, we've always wanted to get rid of Saddam anyway. Let's make him the fall guy. Maybe he convinced himself. Um, I can't say, I never talked to him. But anyway, um, then he had to double down. I remember when, um, I was touring, uh, rising up and rising down, and it was uh, right around then that um, Bush had started his so-called surge in Fallujah, and some somebody was asking on the radio, didn't I think that would turn the war around, and I sort of laughed and said I thought that was so ridiculous, and it, at most it would be like Stalingrad, they'd go in there and wreck the city, and then... Uh, there'd just be more hatred, you know, for the occupiers. Um, I got a lot of radio stations. They'd ask me if I was in favor of the Iraq war, and I'd say I was against it, and then they'd just hang up on me. One time I called Bush a war criminal, and then the, the radio station cut me off and had a long, long, up-to-the-minute discussion of traffic, you know. Um, wow. And that sort of stuff makes me sort of chuckle. I was you know, ch chuckling is a pretty charitable emotional reaction to uh, to someone sticking their head so promptly and deeply in the sand. What do you what did you make of well two things, the alleged burial at sea of Osama bin Laden, and uh, did you in your in the course of your research did you read Gene Edward Smith's biography of George W? Yes, I did. That I. I find that a fascinating presidential biography because it's so frothing with rage. And I'm wondering yeah. your, your take on that and the alleged uh, burial at sea. Well, uh, 
Have you read uh, Seymour Hersh's little book, The Killing of Osama? N- uh, no. Uh, well, um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's what I uh, relied on. They, uh, he's, he claims uh, that, uh, you know, after the, the Navy SEALs killed him, which, of course, as far as I'm concerned, um, was absolutely wrong. You know, it would have been so much better. Here's this unarmed old guy, you know, with no, you know, feeble. Why didn't they just grab him, black bag him if they had to, and put him on trial? I mean, that's what we did with the Nazi war criminals. And when I talk to my friends about this, I'm horrified. Oh, well, Bill, that was different times back in 1945. You can't do that now because what if what if he uh, he stirred up more jihad, you know, when he was preaching from court? You know, so it's all about fear. So we, I thought it was a, a disgusting thing and needless. According to Hirsch, then the, the special ops guys were cutting off pieces of him and throwing him, you know, out the doorway of the airplane as they were buzzing over the Hindu Kush. And the, uh, the USS Carl Vinson... Um, you know, had no record of a burial sea. There was no imam, you know, to make it a Muslim ceremony. Uh, so I'm not going to say that I was there, you know, and that I know. But um, I think that, uh, you know, um, I give Hirsch a lot of credibility, you know, for what he did with Milai and so forth. And uh, so, uh, so in my novel... Um, I tell it his way, and uh, you know the CIA. Some of them are uh, sitting around at a bar, and and you know, and chuckling about it, and thinking, "Oh yeah, there are probably a couple pieces that they brought back to Langley and have pickled." You know, why wouldn't they? Um, and uh, you know, it's very very difficult um, when you're writing a novel about. Um, um, an organization dedicated to secrecy, uh, you know, you know that most things are going to get wrong because they want you to get it wrong. That's how they protect themselves. So all you can do is do your best. And if you think that you might be going, you, you might be pushing them a little bit hard over here, then you have to give them a little extra slack over there. Um, so, uh, Elliot has this, uh, this office crush, uh, named Kimberly and she's, uh, you know, she's a right wing Catholic, you know, like a lot of the, the people in the intelligence community. And, uh, she goes to the September 11th Memorial and cries uh, several times. And, uh, I never saw the Memorial until, um, last spring and when I went there I found it very very touching um, and also really really ominous and ugly the way you're looking down into these wells and then the water swirling down into this black hole of death I thought Bill are you being fair to Kimberly and to these other people you've been putting in you know a lot of stuff about extraordinary rendition and so forth. 
you've got to keep that inbuilt, but make sure you don't forget to, uh, to show that you understand their grief and their fear and everybody else's. Yeah, there was a video that, that um, got a lot of attention a few months ago of someone attempting suicide by jumping into that memorial. Um, yeah, I think I think the, the the most graphic part is that he he breaks his ankle while while jumping in. Uh, what you're de- what you're describing about trying to research and, and as you say, interviewing people who are who belong to an organization that is predicated on misinformation or at least secrecy. A couple of years ago, I read back to back two CIA memoirs. The first was debriefing the president. That fascinating, very slim memoir about. Um, by John Nixon. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. That's a very good yeah. one. And you could see th- there's redacted text throughout where he submitted it to the seventh floor for authorization. And they said, okay, you got to black this stuff out because it pertains to other secrets. And then very shortly on the heels of that book came, I think her name is Lauren Fox, and the book was called Life Undercover. Um, she's, uh-huh. Yeah, and that one, that one was so gripping. And yet, it, having just read the John Nixon one... I was just, I became extremely skeptical of, about how forthcoming it was. Um, and I was thinking it, what would make more sense in a CIA memoir is what John Nixon presents, which is a very frustrated introduction in which he says, inexplicably, my superiors have insisted that I redact X portions of the text, whatever. Uh, what did you make of her memoir? Do you think that was kind of propaganda, trying to make it look sexy? I haven't read it. Oh, okay. uh, so I don't know. Um, Nixon, uh, yeah, I actually uh, was quite impressed with him. I dropped in a few details, and then uh, uh, on a couple of times, uh, he makes a cameo appearance, um, um, you know, describing um, some of the, the stupidities that he's put through. Um, and, uh, um, you know, that's always been the case, right? With any organization um, is going to want to um, control speech and and cover up any sort of family squabble or anything that makes it look bad. You know, like some of the the political correctness out here in California or the uh, the banning of textbooks in your state. It's all part of the same thing. Oliver Wendell Holmes at one point said something like, look, if you are absolutely convinced of the correctness of your position and you have enough power, um, then of course you're going to do whatever it takes um, to block these dissenting positions from being enacted. So, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, somebody embarrassed about uh, something that's happened in the family and tries to cover it up, um, or whether it's Nixon trying to cover up Watergate, it's all the same stuff. How could it not be? Yeah, yeah, um, which I guess is one of the broad strokes takeaways from The Seven Dreams is uh, the recurrence of these same motivations, if not, you know, the exact same atrocities. Uh, but but as, as we near the end, I, I wanted to switch gears and start asking you some of the questions from readers that were submitted on Reddit. And uh, okay. one, of, one of the first things, and 
I is, is sorry to prompt you with such a huge subject in a compressed space of time, but Kissinger's death. I guess just take that where you will. Well, um, he was a fascinating man. Uh, I wish that uh, I could have met him. It seems as if um, he did quite a bit of uh, of evil in the world. The way that he uh, he betrayed the Kurds in 1975, for instance, which is sort of alluded to in the Pike Report. You know, um, Saddam and the Shah were having a border dispute. So uh, Kissinger encouraged the Kurds um, to rise up against Saddam, to put pressure on him. So then um, they started, you know, um, making threats to come um, into Iran, maybe, and so forth. And Saddam, you know, said, all right, I've had enough, you know, shut down this Kurdish uprising. And so then they, they agreed that Saddam would transfer some territory to the Shah, and then they just cut off aid to the Kurds, and they were slaughtered, sent back, you know, if they crossed into Iran. It was really, really ugly. And they had just uh, bought Kissinger, a really, really fancy wedding present, all this kind of stuff. You know, um, it turns my stomach, and, uh, and it also turns my stomach, you know, when he said, uh, well, politics uh, should not be confused with missionary work. You know, but that having been said, I think that uh, he wasn't all bad, you know, and what he did with uh, helping uh, Nixon to open up China, um, that was a good thing for the world. And uh, his motives, you know, were called triangular diplomacy. He wanted to put um, pressure on the Soviets and interfere between them and the Chinese, um, you know, so that we would come out on top. Um, so there's not very much that was moral about him. He did some, some brutal things. As a literary stylist, you know, for a politician, he's one of the best. I like his wit and his, his quips. And I'm sure that uh, if I were um, to write a a book about him, a novel about him, I would be sickened by a lot of the stuff that I found out. But he had a really interesting way of, of characterizing personalities, you know, in a, in a few words. Like at some point he, he talked about Nixon, you know, as having this um, trademark, uh, hopeless bravery that... Uh, he knew that whatever he did was not going to work, and then eventually he started thinking, um, since we're going to get blamed, we might as well do this crummy stuff anyway. You know, like, maybe we should drop an H-bomb on North Vietnam and all this stuff. There's one really nasty thing that Reagan said in one of his speeches, and, you know, he's always going back to these these lowbrow cowboy movies and war movies and he's saying now there's this one general and he's just been mortally wounded and so the second in command is coming over him to him to get advice and, and the dying man says remember at a certain point there's this one really really ugly thing you're always going to have to do 
and you have to do the ugly thing and keep it quiet. You know, it's it's the kind of thing that uh, you know that that Kissinger did. Certainly, the kind of thing that uh, the KGB was doing. You know, that Hitler was doing. Um, so I don't know if that's an answer, but that's what I would say. Yeah, I know it's it's a sprawling thing, and and it, again, you know, thinking of the the father figure. In Table for Fortune, he, he too had such an uncharacteristically long career. I remember from the Trump administration, someone told an anecdote. I don't know how it got out to the press about barging into the Oval Office at Liberty. It was someone that close to the president and being surprised to find Henry Kissinger there, sort of leaning in and offering close counsel. Um, so, so, and I'm sure, you know, in decades to come, we're going to find that he was more involved far longer than the, the public knew. Sure. Well, another one of the questions submitted by a reader is, are there any updates about your piece on Melville and Lovecraft? Yeah, I just finished it, um, and uh, I'm going to see um, if my agent can sell it. Um, it may be that I'm not going to have an American publisher anymore, but she's going to try. The book is called Three Dark Story, or sorry, Three Dark Studies. The first essay... It's all about work, and it compares uh, Tolstoy, you know, for whom work could be rapture, Solzhenitsyn, for whom work was exploitation in the gulag, but you could still try to enjoy it for its own sake and fight back, and then Shalomov, for whom, uh, you know, work was extermination. Um, So I talk about them and bring in... um, you know, the German and Cambodian Holocaust as well. And then the the second of the three is about Pulp Fiction over here and comparing Ayn Rand with Robert A. Heinlein, their ideas about who deserves to be a citizenship, to be a, a, a citizen. Should you have to be in the military to vote? If you're some tycoon, do you have the right to withhold your product from people? Um, all this stuff, you know, it's quite nasty, a lot of this this pulp stuff that we still believe. And then the third part, yeah, compares Melville and Lovecraft with a whole bunch of uh, references to um, Arthurian romances and Jung and pulp horror and so on and so forth. This is way more, way more broad than I was expecting. I thought it was going to be a very strict kind of long essay on those two authors. This sounds terrific. It, oh, thanks. Is it already in her hands and out to imprints, or...? No, I'm, it's not in her hands yet. Um, the, um, the Heinlein uh, Rand chapter still isn't finished. I've asked her to try to, uh, to sell it um, unfinished. So she doesn't have the completed one yet, but she's doing her best. We'll see. Okay. And uh, someone someone pointed out that the the age I guess at which you are completing Table for Fortune is about the point in his life that Norman Mailer was doing Harlot's Ghost. Oh uh, yeah, that's true. At the time, he said he was compelled toward it by a sense of personal identity crisis, and in a Norman Mailer way, he equated his own feelings with the nation, and he said America has an identity crisis, and it can be rooted down to you know so that spies are a great metaphor for that. What are your thoughts on that novel, if you have any? And uh, do you do you think it might be anything about that period 
this period in life, maybe something about having been an American, a voter for so long, that at a certain point compels you toward the CIA and the nation's secrets? I think Harlot's Ghost is a good book. Um, I don't think it's uh, it's nearly as good as The Naked and the Dead and uh, a lot of his journalism from the 60s, you know, which Library of America recently brought out. There's some great stuff in there. In terms of, you know, my age and the CIA and so forth, I'm at the point where I can't get away with with flirting with baristas if I, without being seen as a dirty old man. You know, I have to tone it down. And also, uh, as one of my friends always says, to be old is to be irrelevant. So um, uh, it's actually nice to be around younger people and be a fly on the wall. They don't really care that I'm there and I don't have to interact or do anything that I don't want to do. You know, the young people, they're getting mixed up now as to who was who in World War One versus World War Two. Whereas for me, you know, I'm a I'm a twentieth century man, you know, I was born in fifty nine. And so, um as the stuff becomes you know, it, it gets farther and farther away in time and in memory. I feel um, more of an obligation to uh, to try to describe it, you know, uh, based on maybe what uh, what I remember as a kid, what my parents said. I was uh, I was only nine in 1968, so uh, but I I do remember, you know, seeing all the awful Vietnam footage on the six o'clock news, and that stuff stays with me and. And then, obviously, um, the U.S. has lost its way. Nobody's satisfied. Um, you know, right now in the election, we have a choice between this this feeble cardboard president who, uh, you know, who can't even uh, stand up, you know, against climate change, and this uh, this idiotic thug, you know, who's threatening to throw people in jail or maybe he can assassinate his rivals and instead of people being worried you know they're busy fighting each other once again you know it's since i'm quite powerless why not take the uh the approach of tacitus or thucydides and say well this is what i see this is what i saw this is how i think we got from there to here and this is what I think might happen, and it's not good, but if I try to describe it and bring, you know, some of the parties to life, then uh, maybe I can help somebody younger who can do something about it. If I could have switched to a traffic report as you started talking shit about the president, I would have. Yeah, good thing I was a (laughs) compliant citizen. (laughs) 